Take your Bibles out and turn with me, if you would, please, this morning to Philippians chapter 3. I want to bring a message this morning entitled, Sanctified Living. Philippians chapter 3, we will concentrate on verses 12 to 15, but I do want to back up to verse 7 and begin reading there. Uh, Stand for the reading of God's Word, if you would, please. Paul says, "But, but whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ." The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Father, we thank you for this challenging passage that tells us volumes about the Christian life and the dedication and the consecration that we need in it. Uh, Being saved by grace only through faith in Christ doesn't mean that we sit back and live a, a life of being saved and satisfied. But Lord, we need to press on. As Paul says here, to obtain that, For which you laid hold of us. Lord we pray for this year with all the opportunities that lie ahead. That we would indeed live this way. That we would be yielded vessels in your hands. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. You know as you read Paul's writings it seems that Paul loved to use some, paint some verbal images uh, to describe the Christian life. Uh, we know that old saying that a picture paints a, a, a thousand words and it's true. Well Paul loved to give us some verbal images of what's involved in the Christian life. And it seems that primarily there were four of these images that he would have us to focus in on. Uh, The first image that he gives of the Christian life is that of a soldier. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells Timothy that we need to live our lives as a good soldier of the cross. And he reminds Timothy that no soldier gets entangled in everyday affairs. He keeps his life clean. He lives simply because he wants to live according to the pattern that his commanding officer has set down for him. 
And so a soldier, that's one of the images. Another one of the images that Paul communicates to us in his letters is the image of an architect or a builder. Now we know that the foundation is none other than Jesus Christ. And we need to be wise builders and build only on that foundation. And then there's the image of a farmer. A farmer prepares the soil, he scatters the seed, and then he has to sit back and be patient. He has to pray and trust God to send the rains. And then after a period of time, when the crop is ready, he harvests the crop. And then finally in Paul's letters, we see the image of an athlete. An athlete has to discipline himself and compete according to the rules. And so we are to live disciplined lives as Christians. We are to discipline ourselves toward holiness. As we look at our passage this morning, it's the image of an athlete that Paul seems to have in mind. In the Christian life, the Word of God tells us what the goal is or what the finish line is. In Romans 8, 29, uh, God says, For whom he foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so what God is up to through his spirit and his word is his spirit taking his word and using that to mold us and shape us that we would be more like Jesus. That's God's goal for us. Well, this morning, let's see what it takes to finish the race. I think this is a great text for us to look at here at the beginning of a new year. First of all, I want you to note with me this morning that if we're going to be a good athlete and run the race in order to win, we need to have an honest assessment of our spiritual life. Verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Now naturally as we look at verse 12, we we see this assessment on Paul's part of what his shortcomings are. If you were to back all the way up to the beginning of chapter 3, Paul has just stated in in very lofty terms, or rather I should say back in verse 7, in lofty terms what he wants to accomplish. He wants to know Christ fully. Everything in his life, anything in his past or present that gets in the way of that or or conjures up any kind of pride either in his heritage or his performance, he wants to let go of that. He wants to put all that aside. How different that attitude is compared to those at Philippi who were acting as though they had already arrived. You go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 3 and there were those who apparently were boasting in the flesh. Through regeneration that had happened to Paul on the road to Damascus, he now knows it's absolutely futile to boast in the flesh. The Christian life is all about Christ. If we're going to boast, we're to only boast in the cross of Christ. Paul said that's what he wants to do. And then he goes on to make that statement that even if it requires suffering and hardship for him to reach his goal, 
That's what he wants to have to go through in his life. Now, some would say, when you think about Paul saying that, that here is a man who, who has arrived. I mean, a Christian who says he's even willing to go through suffering? Somebody who's willing to go through trials and tribulation and suffering to be what Christ wants him to be? Surely that's a person who has arrived. Well, Paul wants us to know that that is exactly not what he is saying. That is not the claim he is making. Paul wants to stretch forward and apprehend that for which he has been apprehended. And so as we read these verses, it would appear as though there's almost a holy dissatisfaction to his life. Everything that God had in mind for Paul when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and converted him, everything that God had in mind for him, Paul wants to achieve. The last thing he wants to do is coast through his Christian life. In fact, uh, the, 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 the very fact that God came to him in grace and saved him is motivation enough. I mean the fact that God would look down at people such as us and when we could do nothing to lift ourselves up to God He came down to us uh, through His Son that we might be reconciled to Him. When we think of God in Christ bridging that gulf that we couldn't bridge that ought to be motivation in in and of itself enough. A motivation of gratitude. And that's what he's expressing here. And in making this assessment of his life, he's very honest with his shortcomings. He says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. The word perfect here is the Greek word to telemai. It makes me think of a related word that Jesus said from the cross. Jesus from the cross said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Both of those words come from a related root that means to reach the end or to bring to fulfillment. Paul is saying, I know that I have not yet reached the end. I've not brought to fulfillment all that God wants me to be. I've not fulfilled all of my potential. Whatever others may claim for themselves, Paul is saying, I've not hit that mark yet. Again, at the beginning of the chapter, he addresses those who take pride in the flesh. And and he launches into his resume. He says, if they want to play that game, I can play that game along with them. In fact, in that game of kind of comparing what we've done in life, Paul says, I can outshine anything that they've done. As a a rabbi, he was blameless according to the law. He'd done everything as a rabbi just right. And he had all of the proper pedigree. He was born into the right tribe in Israel. He had all the right upbringing and training. I mean, he could outshine any of his contemporaries as far as human achievements. But remember in verse 7, he says, now that he's met Christ, all of that is rubbish. All of it's garbage compared to knowing Christ. 
Well, now he points out that he has not obtained perfection or complete maturity yet. So long as life lasts, there's further progress to be made. Now again, the analogy here is the analogy of a race. A race is not over until it's over. Not until you cross the finish line and the prizes are awarded is the race over. And so Paul is saying here, until that time, he was going to live with this holy dissatisfaction. Tell me, is there that kind of unique dissatisfaction to your Christian walk? You see, there needs to be. There needs to be a kind of dissatisfaction. If there is not a a dissatisfaction with where we are in our Christian journey, then growth is not even going to be on our radar. It's not even going to be a priority with us. We're just going to kind of sit back and be complacent and comfortable. I think of that uh, beatitude that Jesus told where he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Is there a hunger to your spiritual life? Is there a thirst? Or is there just a complacent satisfaction? Jesus spoke of those who hunger and thirst. And again, that's what Paul is talking about here. If there is not this unique kind of holy dissatisfaction about our lives, I'm not sure we can even claim to have a good, solid, biblical understanding of salvation. Yes, Paul knew it was all of grace. And Paul had hammered on those who wanted to add anything to grace. Those who wanted to add anything to Jesus. They wanted to have a Jesus plus something else salvation. He hammered on those saying that's not the gospel at all. And at the same time as a believer he's saying now that you are a Christian... There, you do need to be consecrated in your life. A salvation rooted in Christ does something to the human heart. It humbles the human heart to the point that you want to live a life of gratitude. There's no thought of trying to pay God back. It's not that at all, but it is an attitude of utter gratitude that God would reach down in his mercy and grace and save you and me we are are to be so changed by that, we are to be so moved by that, that all of our priorities and all of our ambitions change I think Paul would warn us that if that is not our understanding of salvation, maybe we don't have the right understanding maybe we've not truly been changed The genuine believer has this thirst, this ambition to know Christ, to become whatever it is that Christ wants of them. If that's not the case, then maybe we're no better off than the Laodiceans that Christ said he would spew out of his mouth. Remember what they said? They said, we're rich and we don't need anything. Hey, look at us. We're good to go. And Christ responded by saying, you don't realize That you are poor and wretched and blind and naked. 
After being saved by grace, there needs to be this assessment that says, Now I realize I've not arrived. I've not apprehended everything for which Christ has apprehended me. Again, a motivation of gratitude. This is not a works theology. It's a theology that says grace, or gratitude rather, is the appropriate response to grace. Now look again at verse 11. What is the it that Paul is referring to here that he has not attained? Well in verse 11 he describes what it is. It is the resurrection of the dead. He acknowledges that 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 will be the consummation of his salvation. That will be the point at which his faith becomes sight. And he's with the Lord. But until then, Paul is saying, I've got a lot of growing to do. Now folks, I want you to think about this for a minute. Most would acknowledge that the Apostle Paul is the greatest theologian of the church, the greatest missionary, and the greatest church planner there's ever been. Wrote most of our New Testament. God used Paul to write most of our New Testament. Here is a man that on any given Sunday throughout the year, chances are pretty good that believers down to the current time are reading one of his letters. And here is Paul saying, I'm not there yet in my Christian life. I've not, obtained, I've not laid hold of everything for which Christ laid hold of me. That's a mature way of thinking about our salvation. Folks, when we were saved, we were not simply saved only to go to heaven. If that were the only goal of salvation, why didn't God just take us on to heaven right when he saved us? But he left us behind because he has a work for us to do, a ministry for us to do. What has God called you to do? Have you laid hold of that yet? Are you living your life right now so that one day, even if it's 50 years from now, you can say, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. There needs to be an honest, humble assessment of where we are and what we have left to pursue. Second thing I want you to see We need a proper perspective on the past. Look again at what he says in verse 13. In verse 13 he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Circle that phrase, one thing I do. We see that phrase a number of places in the Bible. For instance, remember Jesus talking to the rich young ruler? He told the rich young ruler, there is one thing you lack. One thing. Remember what Jesus told Martha? Martha wanted her sister Mary to get up and help Martha serve. And Jesus said, Martha, I'm not going to make Mary do that. There's only one thing required and Mary has chosen that. 
Remember what they asked the blind man in John's gospel. They, they said, how, how are you healed of your blindness? What do you say about Jesus? And the blind man said, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly what has happened here. But one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. And Jesus did it. One thing. Well, Paul says here, there's one thing that I do. And notice how he breaks that down into two components, a negative and a positive. Negatively, he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. We need to have a little bit of a holy amnesia. There are some things in the past perhaps you need to forget. Paul had to forget about his impressive resume and accomplishments. He also had to forget about his sin. Remember what he said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1? He said, I was the chief of all sinners. Paul persecuted the church. He persecuted Christians and, and imprisoned some. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. And then he got letters from the high priest to go to Damascus and get Christians who were there and haul them back to Jerusalem and either put them to death or put them on trial. And that's where he was when Christ converted him. He needed to forget about some of those sinful, hurtful things he had done to people. You see, if Paul had spent time dwelling on his past, evidently he knew he, he would end up at the wrong place. So he says, I'm forgetting what lies behind. Maybe some of you need to do a little bit of that this new year. Maybe there's some hurts in the past. Somebody said something to you or did something to you and... And, and you know what, you've, you've kind of been in bondage to that for maybe weeks, months, perhaps even years. It's time to let that go and get over it. Let go of those hurts. Maybe there's something you've done in the past, something by way of, of, of sin, that even as a believer now that continues to haunt you, you know what you need to do? You need to lay that at the foot of Jesus and, and, and trust that He's forgiven us of all of our sins, past, present, and future. He's washed us clean through His blood. Maybe some of you need to forget that about your past. Maybe there's some failures you need to let go of. You can't do anything about that now. Learn from your mistakes and move on. And so for some of you here today, maybe there's some baggage back there that you need to let go of. You need to say one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Others perhaps need to let go of some feelings of accomplishments and comfort. Maybe, maybe you're too satisfied and comfortable where you are. And so there are some things back there behind that you, that you need to let go of in that respect. And there needs to be some closure. Don't be controlled by the past. I want you to think about something for a minute. When God says, I will remember their sins no more, does that mean that God suddenly forgets? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Rather, it means that God chooses not to remember. He chooses not to hold the past against us. Christ has borne the penalty for us on the cross. 
And so that's what we must do. We must choose not to be governed by the past. Folks, Satan is the great accuser. He could have said, Paul, God will never use you. Look at how you treated the early church. Do you think God is ever going to use you, Paul? I wonder if Paul ever had to deal with some of those accusations. How about Simon Peter? Remember, Peter denied Christ not once, not twice, three different times. And that's why after the resurrection, before the ascension, Jesus told the ladies, go back and tell my disciples and Peter that I've been raised from the dead and I will meet them in Galilee. Isn't that beautiful? Go tell my disciples and Peter. Why did Jesus single out Peter that way? Because Peter might have been thinking, I'm not worthy to be in the band of disciples anymore. I think that's why Jesus dealt with Peter personally in John 21 when he said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Do you really love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, get up and get back in the race. Satan will cause us to mull over hurts of the past. Maybe what people have done to us. I've met bitter Christians before in my life. Uh, Paul could have been bitter over what the Jews did to him. Remember in 2 Corinthians 11, he said five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Folks, if anybody had opposition and setbacks, it was Paul. His own people, the Jewish people, harassed him. He could have been so bitter about that. But you want to know what he felt about the Jews? Well, in Romans 9, he said, I weep for them. I want the veil to be lifted from their eyes that they would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. He said, if it took me being condemned in order for them to be saved, I'd sign up for that. He's not bitter. He's a broken man over them. He wept for them. Another good example of somebody who who didn't stew over what people did to him was Joseph. Joseph's brother sold him into slavery down to Egypt. And, And Joseph came to power and his brothers came before him one day. He could have had them killed. But he looked at them and he told them, he said, Brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Don't allow others to hinder your walk with the Lord. Somebody might have wronged you somewhere in the past. Are you hanging over on to that? Get over it. Lay that aside. Pray for them. Keep growing. Others get mad at God because he didn't do something they expected him to do. Well, you know what? Paul had a thorn in the flesh and he prayed for God to remove it. God didn't remove it. He prayed again. God didn't remove it. He prayed again. God didn't remove it. God said, Paul, I've got a purpose in that. You'll learn that my grace is sufficient for you through that. Quit opening up wounds of the past. Quit opening up wounds. 
we would never after surgery and you got a big scar somewhere, you would never, when it's healing up, rip that thing open. But that's exactly what a lot of people do emotionally and spiritually. Keep ripping things open. Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting the past, laying all that baggage behind, and then thirdly, notice what he moves on to say about that. He, he, he gives a, an appropriate passion for the present. That's the third thing I want you to see. An appropriate passion for the present. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Twice Paul says, I press on. He says it in verse 12, verse 14. And then in between, in verse 13, he says, I reach forward. The ESV uses the word straining. It, it carries the idea uh, uh, of that runner using intense effort and, and, and leaning forward, straining to get out ahead. And then when, when the runners get to the finish line and there's that ribbon, you see them straining ahead to be the first one who breaks that ribbon. Paul says, that's what I'm doing. Paul pressed on toward the goal. He pressed on what? The goal of the upward call. In other words, he lived the Christian life like a runner who's out to win. He didn't run like somebody who's half-hearted. Because in a race, the runner would be called, the winner would be called up to the emperor's seat and, and handed a wreath and, and he would be congratulated by the emperor. Paul lived in such a way that when he was called up at the end of his life to the judgment seat of Christ, he would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Folks, wouldn't it be awesome? Think, think about the time, the expense, the energy some people put into a hobby. I know people who give hobbies their all. It's, it's all about every free moment, every free dollar, every free minute of extra energy is all expended maybe on some hobby or something. Wouldn't it be great if that same man or woman put all that energy into their Christian walk? That's what he's talking about here. Brian Harbour writes, The greatest indictment of the Christians in our day is not that we're merely falling short of the mark, but that we've quit, quit striving to even reach the mark. What are some of your goals? Do you have any spiritual goals? How about in relation to prayer? How about in relation to Bible study? How about in relation to memorizing some Bible verses? How about in terms of once and for all discovering your spiritual gift and using it for the good of the body of Christ? Maybe it has to do with your giving. Maybe it has to do with having a burden for the lost. Reach forward. Have some things in your Christian journey that you're working on. Have some striving that you're doing. Now Paul makes it clear in verses 13, 14 what he's talking about. He wants to live in light of the coming judgment. He knows there will eventually be for him that upward call. When that day happens, 
He wants to be without regret. He wants to live in the present, preparing for the future. He wants to live in the present. Now understand the contrast he's making. He wants to live in the present, not controlled by the past. But he wants to live in the present, controlled rather by what he wants to hear in the future. That upward call when we stand before Jesus. Now, in closing today, I I, I want you to think a moment about what Paul is saying in this whole passage that we're looking at. What's he describing in the text here? He is describing what theologians refer to as the doctrine of sanctification. Now, when we think about sanctification, there's two ways that the New Testament speaks of sanctification. There is an immediate sanctification and there is an ongoing sanctification. The immediate is when I'm saved by grace, God sets me apart. God sanctifies me at that moment in time, the moment in time of my conversion. I'm sanctified, I'm set apart for His purposes. But then there's the ongoing sense of it. I am to become practically what he has already made me positionally. And usually when we talk about sanctification, it is that ongoing sense that people write about and speak about. Folks, in this ongoing sanctification, we need to realize that our struggle with sin is not over. But the point is that for the believer, sin is no longer our master. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, we battle, but we battle with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now that means for somebody to say, I cannot overcome my gossip, or I cannot overcome my temper, this is just who I am, that discounts the fact that if you're a believer, sin is no longer your master. Yes, you may continue to struggle, but if you claim defeat, you are denying the point that you are not under the mastery of sin. You're saying sin reigns in your body, whereas Scripture says it doesn't. Now folks, here's a point where Baptist and Reformed believers both are different from some of our Arminian brothers and sisters. Particularly the Arminian brothers and sisters of the Wesleyan stripe or some of the holiness groups. You see, they teach something known as entire sanctification. And what they mean by that, take the process out of it. Tomorrow morning, for instance, you might wake up and all of a sudden you are entirely sanctified. And you're going to live in just complete victory. It's not that you can't sin, it's that you won't sin. Because you don't even have a mindset to do that anymore. 
Now, folks, as I read my New Testament, that's not the sense I get out of sanctification. It is a lifelong, ongoing thing where we, until Jesus either takes us home or comes for us, we are to live with this ongoing consecration, this ongoing sanctification. If you think that you've been entirely sanctified, I want to set up an appointment with your wife and talk to her. Now, what are the motives for sanctification? Well, there are many. I'll give you a few. God's blessing on your life and ministry. You want God's blessing on your life and ministry? Sanctification. The avoidance of God's discipline. The judgment seat of Christ. Fourth, the way to be a vessel for God's use for noble purposes. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 about in a large house there are some vessels of honor and some to dishonor. We need to cleanse ourselves of the latter and be a vessel of honor. And then as theologian Wayne Gruden points out, sanctification is the recipe for your personal peace and joy. Most want peace and joy. It comes for the believer through sanctification. Now, what if somebody says, Pastor, I I hear all of that. I I hear everything Paul is saying here, but but I think I've decided I'm just going to keep on the way I am and I'm just going to keep on living the way that I am. I mean, daily yieldedness, daily consecration to the Lord. That that sounds like some work involved. I work enough in my life. I don't want to work in my Christian journey. I just want to sit back and coast. Well, look at what Paul says to him about this in verse 15. In verse 15 he says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not going to arm wrestle you over this. I can't make you. All I can do is is speak to your ears. God's going to have to be the one to speak to your hearts. And so in this matter of running the Christian race and pressing on and and becoming everything, apprehending everything for which he apprehended you, that's going to have to be something that God deals with you about. If you don't want to listen to the scripture, what scripture says on this, God will have to deal with you. Because all I can do is speak to ears. Does God need to change you in some way this morning? Do do you have to be convinced in favor of sanctified living? I hope not. Because after all, it it just it's plain, simple, biblical living. That those who have been saved by grace live according to that grace. A heart of gratitude. Good works not as a root of salvation, but a fruit of salvation where we press on and grow in Christ-likeness. As you think about your Christian life, I want to challenge you this morning to make an honest assessment of where you are right now. 
Where do you seem to be struggling? Where do you seem to be struggling? Ask for God's help. Ask for His wisdom, His counsel, His strength. Where are you making progress? An honest assessment of where I am in my Christian life. Are you afraid to do that? An honest assessment. Where am I in my Christian growth? Is there somebody here this morning that there's something that you need to let go of and put it in the past? Some hurt, some failure that today you you continue to live in bondage to that. Is there something you need to let go of? In what areas of your life do you sense that you need to strain forward and reach forward? Do you ever even think of this? Do you ever even think of the thought that when Christ apprehended you, how long ago was it that you were regenerated, saved? Five years ago? Fifteen years ago? Twenty-five years ago? 50 years ago. Do you ever think in terms when when God reached down and saved me out of darkness and deadness? When he apprehended me. God had some things in mind for my life. Am I on track to reach that? If not, what do I need to do about it? With God's help. Would you stand please? This morning in our, in our time of invitation. Maybe there's somebody that just needs to come to the altar this morning. And if you sense a need to make a public commitment. And say God there. There are some things in the past I need to let go of. Maybe God's put a burden on your heart about some kind of ministry or service that you ought to be doing and you've been struggling with God over that and it's time you surrender. Could God be calling some young man in this congregation to be a pastor? Could God be calling some couple in this congregation to the mission field? Is that what God had in mind for you when he saved you? Somewhere on the mission field. Yield to that. Say, God, it it scares me. I don't know the answers to all that. It scares me, but with your help, I'll do it. Anybody dealing with anything like that? Is there anybody here who's not even begun the Christian journey yet? I'd love a chance to pray with you here during the invitation. Maybe a family that, that... Part of a new year, they want a church family where they can grow together corporately with other believers. You come forward as well.